This is a presentation of Redemption Bible Church. For more information, please visit our website at redemptionbc.org. Hey, growing up, uh, did it seem like your parents had a bunch of rules that you had to follow? Like a bunch. And uh, most of the time, like, we don't like rules, do we? We don't like the rules we had. We don't understand the rules. They, they tell us the what, but they rarely tell us the why behind the what. And so it's easy for those rules to just feel arbitrary and made up, right? And you kind of start wondering, like, are mom and dad, are they just plain mean? Like, are they like the fun police? Do they, is this fun for them to watch us scream like this? And so I asked a few of you this week, like, what are some of the rules you had to follow as kids? And uh, they kind of came in buckets. Like, there was a lot of rules about swimming. Swimming's got a lot of rules. One of them being, like, you have have to follow this rule. You can't go swimming for 30 minutes after you eat. Okay? I don't get that one. I was like, why are they selling snacks at the swimming pool if you can't go swimming? Okay? Another one. You have to walk around the edge of the swimming pool. Why? I'm excited to get to where I'm going. And then one of you said something about, like, you have to pass a swimming test in order to jump off the high diving board. Like, why? Just let me go jump. I'm not swimming, I'm jumping. Someone will come get me if I can't swim, won't they? No? Lots of rules about swimming. There's lots of rules about eyes, I noticed, too. One of them being, you ever remember this one? If you cross your eyes for too long, they're going to get stuck. Yeah? Uh, One being, if you sit too close to the TV, you're going to burn your eyes. Uh, But there's an out there that uh, your eyes are going to get better if you eat all of your cooked carrots on your plate. Right? And never raw carrots, always cooked and always like mush cooked. Like it's like mashed carrots. Um, our parents did not understand the word andante. It's a beautiful word when it comes to vegetables and pasta. Lots of rules about snacks, right? No snacking between meals. Like we even use that one. Um, I don't think they hear us when we say it, but we say it. No snack between meals. Um, I was never able to eat the cookies or the brownies that mom made uh, because whenever she made them, it was always for someone else. Right? It was either for a company coming over or a bake sale or something at church. And uh, there was even a story where someone's mom, uh, someone's mom only bought them the generic store brand cookies, okay? And they thought that that's all that the family bought until one day they found a secret cupboard. And in the secret cupboard was mom's secret stash of name brand cookies, And said child thought that if they ate name brand cookies, by the way, today's like National Oreo Cookie Day or something, yeah? Uh, Thanks, Steve, for the helpful information this morning. So so this child thought they could take the name brand cookies and replace them with the store brand cookies and thought that mom wouldn't notice. Colette noticed. You thought it was me, didn't you? Some of you mentioned like you couldn't get Happy Meals when you were a kid. Like you could get the combo meal, but not the Happy Meal for some reason. And you notice though that when there's a rule you have to follow as a kid that you just don't understand or don't like, you just go hog wild the other way and like your kid can get a Happy Meal like 18 times a day because you never could. You got some Happy Meals to make up for. But the list goes on. One of you said, why, why did my best friend forever, my BFF from elementary, why can't he go to school with me in, in middle school? Why can't he go with me to high school? Uh, why, uh, why do I have to make my bed in the morning if I'm just going to mess it up later that night and sleep in it again? And while we're talking about beds and sleeping, why do I have to go to bed so early if I don't have school the next day? Because guess what? It's the middle of summer, and you're making me go to bed before the sun even went to bed, Mom. 
And then, like, I, we had, a lot of us had rules about movies. And you're like, Mom, why can't I watch the movie with the guy wearing a hockey mask? Why can't I watch the movie with the clown in the sewer? Those are good movies. It's because you didn't sleep all night, and neither did your mom or your dad. And so some rules, when you become parents, you better understand them later in life. When you, when you grow, when you start to have kids of your own and implement them, like you understand why you couldn't have eight, eight-year-old friends come over all at the same time. That's just not happening. And, uh, but other rules you still don't get. They really do feel arbitrary. They feel made up. And you're like, what was the point of all of those? And you know, it's easy to feel the same way about God sometimes, isn't it? You're like... Maybe God is just the fun police. Maybe the Bible is just a list of arbitrary rules he just made up. And I think we especially think that to be true of the Old Testament Mosaic law, don't we? The, the law that God handed down to Moses atop Mount Sinai. It's just an arbitrary list of rules. It, it's like, you can do this, but not that. Okay, you can eat this, but not that. There's rules for how we should dress, rules for how we should worship, rules for how you should farm the land, rules for how you should build a house. Like Israel's HOA, they had CCNRs apparently that required you to build a parapet, right? This little railing around the edge of your rooftop deck because I guess they were worried about people falling off and suing you or dying or something if they fell off your deck from a party upstairs. So how do these rules apply to us though? We're not the Jewish people. We're not the nation of Israel. Do we, do we have to follow them, or can we just ignore them and move on? Like, when Moses goes up the mountain in, in the middle of Exodus, can we just skip to the book of Joshua and, and take in the land and skip all that law? It's confusing, right? And the folks in Galatia, they were confused, and they were asking similar questions because, see, after Paul and Barnabas came through planting these churches, preaching this gospel of God's Free gift of grace through faith in Jesus Christ, right? Faith that united them to God as his children. Faith that united them to each other as family. After Paul came these Jewish Christians into town, and they were saying that faith is not enough. That more needed to be done to be accepted by God and to be included into God's family. Faith and adhering to the Mosaic law. Faith and adopting Jewish customs. And so that's why Paul wrote this letter, reminding them, he says at the end of chapter 2, that a person is not justified, right, not made right with God, and doesn't remain right with God by works of the law, right, by what we do, but through faith in what Christ did for you. And that's what we've seen throughout our series in Paul's letter to the churches in Galatia, our series, What Makes Us Family. And what we're seeing is that our faith in Jesus Christ makes us family. Amen? That's the big idea of the series. That is the theme of this letter. Our faith makes us family. Nothing more, nothing less. And that's a significant claim to be making. And he knows this, but it's a claim he supports with evidence, right? Like an, an attorney in the courtroom presenting his supporting evidence. And that's what he does throughout these two middle chapters in chapters three and four. And so we began this section seeing Paul use their own uh, experience as evidence as we reflected on our story of faith. Last week, he, he used the life of Abraham as evidence as we reflected on faith in the Old Testament. And this morning, he's going to focus on this seemingly arbitrary list of 613 rules in the Mosaic Law, reflecting on our misunderstanding of the law. 
That's the title of our sermon this morning, Reflecting on Our Misunderstanding of the Law. And in here, Paul, he's going to give us three ways that we misunderstand the law. And the first way is this, it's that we misunderstand the law's relationship to God's covenant promises. Right? We, got, we got law and we got promise, and we misunderstand the relationship between those two things. So Paul, he begins here with a, with a story, with a, an example, an analogy, one that everyone at the time, 2,000 years ago, would have understood. And he begins here in verse 15 saying, uh, to give a human example, brothers, even, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it's been ratified. Uh, uh, the word for covenant here can also mean uh, testament. Right? We've got the Old Covenant and New Covenant. We've got the Old Testament and New Testament. And, and here, think of them as referring to someone's last will in Testament, a will that you would leave. And a will typically has two rather important parts. It has the what, right? It has the, the inheritance, what it is uh, that's going to be passed on. And then you have the who, right? The beneficiary, who it is that it's going to be passed on to. And a covenant differs from a contract. See, a contract is conditional. There are terms and conditions. It is a bi-directional agreement between two parties, each having a mutually agreed upon responsibilities to fulfill and obligations uh, that they have to uphold for one another. But a covenant's not like that. Right? A covenant is, is non-conditional. A covenant is a unidirectional, one-way promise made by one party to another. It is a commitment without condition. There's nothing you need to do. But see, in a contract, each party only receives the agreed-upon benefit if they fulfill the agreed-upon terms and conditions, whereas in a, in a covenant, the beneficiary receives the agreed-upon benefits no matter what. It is simply a fulfillment of a promise. And you might be thinking, but, but we can update our wills. See, our inheritance laws allow for that. They allow for wills to be updated and amended after notarized. They're, they're kind of written in pencil, so to speak. You can actually be written out of a will. But that wasn't the case for Greek and Jewish inheritance law the, that the people who he's writing to would have abided by. They, those laws prevented wills from being changed once they were ratified. Right? You can't add to it. You can't annul it. They, were, they weren't just written in pen. They were written in like permanent Sharpie. It was like they were tattooed. And I say that because I think we need to be careful when we read our context into the original context. Right? They're, they're not always the same. That's true of most any text that we read. We need to take ourselves back in the DeLorean, in the time machine, so to speak, 2,000 years ago, to understand the context that these original authors are writing in and who they're writing to. And so with that understanding of this human example in mind, he goes on to show what it is that God did in verse 16. He says, now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. Now, uh, last week, you might remember, we, we reflected on faith in the Old Testament, looking at this story of God's covenant promises made to Abraham in Genesis 12. And God, God made unconditional promises to Abraham there. In this promised inheritance that he made, it included three basic things. Number one, God promised Abraham a family. He, he promised a family to this childish, uh, not childish, childless. Uh, I think Abraham was actually a pretty good dude. Uh, 
to this childless 80-something-year-old man and 70-something-year-old wife. He says in verse 2, I will make of you a great nation. He says it again in chapter 13. He says it again in chapter 15, saying, look toward the heaven and number the stars if you're able. So will your offspring be. He's like, Abraham, you're not only going to need a minivan. You're going to need a bus, a whole fleet of buses because your family's going to be so big. He promised him a family. And number two, he promised him land. He promised land to this sojourner who had, who had left his homeland, left it behind. And when he arrived in Canaan, God said to him in verse 7, he says, To your offspring, I will give this land, this whole land. He says it again in chapter 15, saying, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans, out from his original homeland, to give you this land to possess. He promised him family, he promised him land, and to the man who had given up everything to answer God's call, he promised him blessing. He, he said in verse 2, I will bless you, and not just you, but in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And again in chapter 15, he said, fear not, Abraham, why? Because I am your shield. Your reward shall be not just great, but very great, he says. Man, God and Abraham, they didn't enter into a conditional contract with each other. No, God made a covenant with Abraham. These were unconditional promises made to him. And we see God ratify or notarize, so to speak, this covenant in Genesis 15. And uh, if you thought going to Chase to get something notarized was a pain, uh, listen to what you did 4,000 years ago. God had Abraham sacrifice a handful of animals and, and cut them in half. And what he did was he, he split the pieces apart to create a path through the animals. And what would typically happen in ancient Near Eastern customs is that both parties that were agreeing to the terms of this, this agreement, they would both pass through the sacrifice together. And what this was doing is, is this was symbolizing that if either party failed to uphold the terms of the agreement, uh, they would be cut off from the other and possibly cut up like the sacrifice they walked through. They literally sealed this thing in blood. But that's not what happened in Genesis 15. In, in that story, God caused Abraham to fall asleep. And only God passed through the pieces. Sealing not a two-way contract, but a one-way covenant, an unconditional promise that he was making. Signifying that there was absolutely nothing for Abraham to do for God's promises to be fulfilled. Other than to believe God. Right? To believe that he is who he says he is and that he will do all that he's promised to do. To believe God and to trust God to fulfill the promises that he made to Abraham and to his offspring. Right, he goes on to say, it does not say, a little clarification, it does not say into offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one. We get a little grammar lesson today. The, uh, the Hebrew word here for offspring, it can be used, uh, it's kind of an either or, it can be used as a singular to refer to one. It can also be used as a collective singular to refer to a, a group. Think of it like we're our words, like deer and sheep. Right? You can have one sheep, you can have two sheep, you can have a herd of sheep, and if you still can't get to sleep, you just keep counting and counting and counting the sheep. 
And Paul, he, he's saying this is pointing to a singular offspring. And that offspring, is, it's, it's not his son Isaac. No, it's pointing further down the family tree. He, he says in verse 16 at the end here, and to your offspring who is Christ. Right? Further down the genealogy that Matthew opens his gospel with to Jesus, who he calls the son of Abraham, who is called Christ. Make sense? No, no. Uh, verse 15 and 16 kind of sounds like Paul's talking about two entirely different things, doesn't it? Like, how, what, what does this have to do with each other? All I really can say to you is welcome to reading Paul. There's a lot of that with Paul, to the point that Peter, he actually makes a comment in one of his letters that, yeah, that, that Paul guy, he's hard to understand sometimes. I don't get him. And he was an apostle. So don't feel too discouraged when you're like, huh, after reading Paul. But what I love about Paul is he knew we probably weren't picking up what he was laying down. Because look at what he says. Look how he begins verse 17 and 18. He says, this is what I mean. Kind of passive aggressive there, isn't it? It's kind of like a little slab. Like, I know you don't get what I was saying, so let me explain it. The law, which came 430 years afterward, after the promise, it does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance came by the law, it no longer comes by promise. But God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Now remember what he's doing here. He's, he's presenting evidence to support his claim that we are justified, right? That we are accepted by God and included in his family, not by works of the law, but through faith in Christ. And, and he says, like, God's contract came after the covenant, right? He, he gave the law to Moses about 400 plus years after making this promise to Abraham. And while the covenant was a promise, the, the, the law, it, it was a contract, a contract that God drew up with the nation of Israel. And these contractual blessings that it talks about, they were conditional. There was responsibilities that they had to fulfill, obligations they needed to uphold. And if the people of Israel, if they lived a certain way, they could live in the land and receive these blessings. But if they failed to uphold every one of the 613 rules and regulations in Israel's HOA CCNRs, um, and you ever serve on an HOA board? Like people take their CCNRs serious. And if you don't know what a CCNR is, bless you, you've never lived in an HOA and it's good. That's good. But if they didn't uphold every one of these, they'd get evicted. They'd get in their eviction notice. And John Stott, uh, he he kind of compares the promise and the law this way. He says the promise sets forth a, a religion of God, of, of God's plan, of God's grace, of God's initiative. Well, that sounds really good. But the law sets forth a religion of man, man's duty, man's works, man's responsibilities. And so, like, what's going on here? Did... Does God have a short-term memory? Because, like, I got to imagine 430 years to God's like that. Is it, did he forget the promises that he made? Or was there an expiration date on his promises, right? Out with the old, in with the new. Was God calling an, an audible? Was he, like, was he like Peyton Manning up there? Omaha, Omaha! And uh, everybody's just supposed to know we're, we're making a change right now. And uh, taking back his promises? Uh, voiding the covenant? Replacing it with a contract? Is that what he's doing here? Because that's kind of what they were starting to wonder. And Paul says, no, that's not at all what's happening. He says, remember what I said just a couple verses ago? 
the verses weren't in Paul's original letter. We added them later. But he's like, just as a madman covenant is an unconditional, eternal inheritance promised to a beneficiary, just as that's the case for man, isn't it even more so than with God? God, he gave an inheritance to Abraham by an unconditional, eternal promise. That was true before the law came, and that remains true to this very day. And he says, for if it came by law, if it came by contract, if it came by our work, then it no longer comes by promise, it no longer comes by covenant, it no longer comes by faith. Okay, starting to make sense, but we still got this verse 16 thing in here we got to do something with. If the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring, which Paul said is Christ, then like, how do we fit into this? How does this apply to us? Because it kind of looks like it doesn't. Well, here we begin to see both the beauty and the blessing of, of our union in Christ, of, of what it means to be in Christ. I think in Christ gets to be one of those uh, church terms that we use, that we use it so often, we don't, we don't even know what it means after a while. But to be in Christ, simply put, means to put your faith and trust in Jesus as Christ, as the promised Messiah, accepting his forgiveness as our Savior, right? Surrendering your life to Jesus as King and worshiping Jesus as Lord. And by nothing other than faith in Christ, we are in some way incorporated into him as his body. And not just symbolically, but, but, but spiritually, we are his body. We are so united in Christ, our union in Christ, it is so singular that Paul can declare here that God's promises are to be made to Christ, thereby also applying them to those in Christ. Does that make sense? That's how united we are that when he says they are to Christ, they apply then to those in Christ. Because in Christ, he said back in verse 14, the promised blessings of Abraham come to us. They come to us in Christ so that we might receive the promised spirit, not through works of the law, but through faith in Christ's finished work. Or as the 16th century Puritan William Perkins wrote in his commentary, the promises made to Abraham are first made to Christ and then in Christ to all who believe in him. Does that make more sense? I think I had to read that about 52 times this week for it to make sense, so I'm not really expecting us to get it all one time through. Union in Christ, that's the big idea. That's how they apply to us. See, we did nothing. Jesus did everything, amen? And all that God is asking of us is to receive his promised blessings of inheritance, his acceptance as we are adopted into his family, his presence as we are indwelt by his spirit. Blessings that are extended to everyone, available to anyone. And all he asks is that you receive them, that you believe in the name of the one in whom we receive them, in the name of Jesus, for he alone will save his people, save those in Christ from their sin, restoring us to God, uniting us as a family, united in Christ by our faith in Christ. And if none of that still made sense, hear me say this. The presence of God's law did not negate the promise of God's covenant. Everything he's saying here is to say that. 
The law did not erase the promise. The promise stands. And then he moves on to our second misunderstanding here, and that's that we misunderstand the law's purpose. Right? He says in verse 19, why then the law? So, okay, if, if the promise still stands, what was the point of the law? Now that we kind of put it in its place, what was its purpose? Like, it kind of sounds like, Paul, it kind of sounds like you're agreeing with us. God is the fun police. This is an arbitrary list of rules. But he goes on to say in verse 19, he says, why then the law? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. And who was the, prom- who was the offspring the promise had been made? Christ. We got the first point. Good. It, and it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now, an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. God gave the law because of transgressions, he said. Its purpose was to reveal our sin, to reveal how it is that we have rebelled against God, how we've lived outside of the way that God as creator intended for us as his creation to live. It's what John Calvin in his Institutes of the Christian Religion explains as the first of three functions of the law that we see throughout the entirety of Scripture. And notice here this little interesting tidbit. Um, Angels. Huh. Well, so God didn't give his law directly to his people, it says. You know, he gave it. He gave it by Moses, didn't he? He, 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 called Mo, he didn't call everybody up Mount Sinai. He called Moses up Mount Sinai. He gave the law to Moses as an intermediary. He gave it atop Mount Sinai. And notice here, he, he gave it to Moses in the presence of angels. Show of hands. Who remembers that in the book of Exodus? Right? What's he talking about? Well, Stephen, in his final sermon as he is being stoned in Acts 7, he He says, he says that the law was delivered by angels. And and it it was a scene that I don't even think Hollywood can match. At the end, just before Moses passed, as he's preaching his final sermon in Deuteronomy 33, he says, the Lord came from Sinai and dawned upon Sarah upon us. And he shone forth from Mount Paran and he came from the 10,000s of holy ones, of angels with flaming fire at his right hand. I don't, I don't think that has much to do with anything in the rest of the passage, but it's just kind of fun, isn't it? The Bible's fun. There were angels there. It's just that Moses didn't think to write that down in Exodus, but he sure talked about it in Deuteronomy. Stephen talked about it with his last breath. But the law not only reveals our sin, the presence of our sin, it reveals the depth of our sin. It reveals the, the scale of our sin, so to speak. And... Uh, we're, you know, it's, it's March already, so we're starting to talk about what we want to do for summer vacation. And I've had this grand idea for the past couple of years of making a road trip out west. And uh, I want to take the boys to Yellowstone. I want to take the boys to Glacier National Park. And I realize that gas might be like $42 a gallon by then. I don't know. But it still sounds like a really great idea. And, and when you look at the map, like, Glacier's only like that far away. Right? It's four states away. That's all it is, right? Wisconsin, Minnesota, North Dakota, Montana. That's not that bad. It, well, so you know what? When you look at the scale, it's really far. This far is 1,500 miles. That's a long ways. 
But without a scale, we don't notice that. Unless you got Rebecca with you, then she'll let you notice that. That's why we don't live life alone. We live life together. We're each other's scale. Not like that kind of scale. But here's the thing, guys. We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, haven't we? We've probably done it since we got here today. And, And what we're prone to do is to think, but I only sin this much. It's not that bad. And we've been to church enough times that we know the, our sin has separated us from God. We know that. But it's only separated us like that much. Look on the map. It's not that far. But what the law does is it reveals just how far from God we truly are. It is that scale to let us know the depth and the significance of our sin. How how far from God we are. How dire our situation is. How impossible it ever is to make it back to God on our own. It, it It is just too far. Great. The law just accomplished its purpose. Now what? Does the law also close that gap? Well, here we come to the third misunderstanding, and that's this. It's that we misunderstand the law's limits. We misunderstand its limits. It's limited uh, function and it's limited duration. Because now you may, you know, may be wondering, so if God's law, it doesn't void his promises, right? Uh, the contract that did not annul the covenant, we got that. And the law doesn't lead to life, and it said its purpose was to reveal the scope and the depth and the significance of our and the scale of our sin, then what he says here in verse 21 is, is the law then contrary to the purposes of God? That's sort of like the next question they're asking, and he's anticipating them asking. He says, certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. And he begins by showing how we misunderstand this limited function of the law, what it is that it's actually capable of doing. Last week, we saw uh, how we are, we are unwilling to submit to authority in general, and we're unwilling to submit to the authority of God's law specifically. And we're unable, not only that, we're unable to abide by the entirety of God's law. We couldn't even if we wanted to. And he says in verse 11 last week, it's evident that no one is justified before God by the law. We all failed. But here's the thing, even if we are willing, and even if we were able, which we're not, but let's say we were, the law is still incapable of leading to life, because that was never its intended function. That's not why God gave it. God's law and God's grace, right, they're not two alternate paths to the same destinations. It's not choose your own adventure. It's not the scenic route or the shortcut. And and what he says here is, he's like, hypothetically, just pretend for a moment. If God had given a law that could lead to life, then yeah, I agree with you. Our our righteous standing before God, our acceptance as his child, our inclusion in his family, it would indeed be by the law. And if that were the case, then yeah, God's covenant promises, they would be contrary to the contractual law. But that wasn't the law's intended function. It wasn't given to free us from sin, but to reveal the chains that enslave us to sin. And he gives a couple of of illustrations here in verse 23 and 24. He, He says, now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. 
So then the law was our guardian, our pedagogue until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. The law does not lead to life, it leads to death. The law, as we saw last week, it does not offer blessing, it offers curse. The law does not free us, it enslaves us and imprisons us. Paul says here that the law serves as a prison guard, watching over God's people in protective custody, so to speak. And not only that, the law is another example. It served as a guardian, he says, as a, as a pedagogue. Think of it as a, as, a, as a babysitter that really wealthy Greek families would hire to help raise their kids, to watch over their kids. They were their children's protector, their disciplinarian. And, and as rough as they may have been, they were there to serve the best interest of the child. And so he's like, God's law is not contrary to his promises because they serve two entirely different functions. But not only did the law, was the law limited in function, it was limited in duration. Notice the number of times we've heard the word only this morning. It was temporary. It wasn't meant to last. It was, um, you guys remember uh, back in uh, 1893? No, we don't. 1893, Chicago hosted the World's Fair, the Columbian Exposition. It was a big thing. And uh, what they did is they built these massive, elaborate buildings along the lake shore. It looked like you were walking down a, a European capital city. It was beautiful with boulevards, and they named it the White City because it had this appearance of being made of, of solid marble and granite. But it wasn't, not even close. It was just a facade. It was just for show. These buildings, they were only temporary. The white city was never built to last. That wasn't its function. And the same was true of God's law. It was temporary. It was limited in duration. And while it imprisoned God's people during that time, it was only until the coming faith would be revealed. While it served as a, as a guardian, protecting and disciplining God's children, it was only until Christ came. The, the limited function in this limited duration, he, he says in verse 19, was only until the offspring should come to whom the promise was made. And he says in verse 25, but now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. Now that, that Jesus, the one in whom all the promises of God find their yes, now that he has come, the law, it has served its purpose, and it was a useful one. One that, in some sense, continues this some way, but it served its purpose. It fulfilled its function, limited as it may have been. And Martin Luther, as he writes on this, this idea in his commentary on Galatians, he says, the law, it is, it is the most useful servant impelling us to Christ. Why? For its function and use is not only to disclose the sin and the wrath of God, right? It tells us about who God is and what it is that he desires, but also to drive us to Christ, impelling us to Christ. Here, here's the beauty. The law's inability reveals our own inability, doesn't it? The law cannot save you. The law cannot justify you. Fulfilling the law on your own cannot make you accepted by God. Its inability reveals our inability to do those things. It reveals that only Jesus 
is capable of doing that. It, re- it reveals our need for a Savior, for someone else to do what we are both unwilling and unable to do and what the law was incapable of doing. And so I want to close this morning asking a question for you to think about. Why, why are you relying on yourself, your strength, your ability, your intellect, your power? Why are you relying on yourself? Why are you trusting in the law, in rules, in regulations to do what only Jesus can do? Because that's what we're doing, isn't it? We're saying thanks, but no thanks. God, I got this. And what he said earlier, we, we, we nullify his grace. We void Christ's death on the cross when we do that. But rather than living under the weight of the law and trying to fulfill the terms of a contract, you stand no chance of ever fulfilling. God, he's not asking us to do that. No, God, he's, he's inviting us. He's calling out to us to, to live in the freedom of his covenant promises. Promises that he made to Abraham and to his offspring, to Jesus, the son of Abraham, who is the Christ. Promises that are also extended to everyone in Christ as beneficiaries of this promised inheritance that is fulfilled in and through Jesus. Those promises that God made to Abraham in Genesis 12, they carry forward. Promises of family that we are accepted by God, that we are adopted by God as his child included in his family not by anything you did but what faith in what Christ did for you united to him united in him by faith knowing that by his blood your debt has been paid knowing that by his death you have been given life we are no longer enemies of God we are his children And in this room, whether we know each other or not, we are not strangers, but we are family. We are brothers. We are sisters. Amen? The promised blessing of family continues because our faith in Jesus Christ makes us family. Nothing more, nothing less. The promise of family, the promise of land, maybe not an acre in Arlington Heights. That'd be really nice backing up to a forest preserve. We don't have those in Arlington Heights, but maybe if we had one. No, God didn't promise us that kind of land. God also isn't promising us a tiny little strip of land along the Mediterranean Sea. Man, he's got something way better in mind. You know that? A new land. A new creation. A new heaven. A new earth. A new city. A new Jerusalem. I see our final destination on this journey that we are on uh, it's not to a place called heaven. Heaven is not our home. That is not the end of the story, is it? No, that's but a temporary resting place upon our death. As we wait, as we await Christ's return, when our bodies will be resurrected, when he will usher in the fullness of God's eternal heavenly kingdom here on earth as it is in heaven, our eternal home. We have been promised family, we have been promised land, and we have been promised blessing, the blessing of God's presence. For behold, John says, the dwelling place of God is with man, it is with us. And we don't have to wait for that, do we? No, when Jesus left, he said, I will be with you always until the end of the age. And when the Son ascended, the Spirit descended. 
And in this life, we experience God's presence through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And we will experience God's presence for all of eternity in this new creation. Where he will dwell with us and we will be his people, John says. And these promises of family and land and blessing made over 4,000 years ago to Abraham, they are extended. They have not been voided. The covenant continues. Extended to everyone, available to anyone, but only available in Christ, only through faith in Christ. In Jesus, our hope our cornerstone on whom we build our entire life, our Lord, our Savior, and our King. Amen. He is our hope, and it is to Him that we pray. Bow your heads with me. Thanks for listening. For more audio content and information about redemption, please visit our website at redemptionbc.org.